0: Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the show. So glad to have you here, as always. I am back in... uh, I guess I never left Northern California. I did escape off into the woods for a week or so with basically no cell phone service, which was exceptionally wonderful. Uh, But now I'm back in the land of uh, Sonoma County, Mooching off some internet to bring you today's episode and to catch up on a week's worth of emails and things um as stressful as it is to have to do all my work for a week in the course of twelve hours um It's better than having access to the internet all the time, I gotta say. It's been fucking wonderful to just sit in the sun and breathe fresh air and listen to the wind in the trees and be with people I care about and have conversations around a fire. Um, I have a WhatsApp group chat for some of my patrons. Uh, I think I was going to limit it to 25 people. But I think I'm going to um, bring it up to 30. And there are 27 people in the group now. So if you would like to be a part of that, uh, now is the time to become a patron. Um, which you can figure out how to do that at patreon.com slash Anya Anyway, the purpose of me bringing that up was that I was leaving a voice memo in the group chat for my patrons. Uh, comparing myself to Grizzly Man don't know if you guys have seen that film but if not i highly uh recommend it guy who spent true story documentary by uh werner herzog um a dude who lived out with grizzly bears in alaska and uh i won't give away too much of the movie although it's exceptional so you should definitely watch it um but at the end basically he's going back home to civilization he spent like something like 13 summers out in the fucking wilderness with grizzly bears in Alaska and the end of the film, he um, is going back to go home and apparently as per his journal entries um, got into some sort of like argument or scuffle with uh, as he described it, an overweight flight attendant or something like that at the airport Um, And just got so fucking frustrated and was like, I can't deal with this. I'm going back. And so he went back into grizzly land. And uh, it was far too past the season where he should have been doing that. And the bears were different bears than he was used to. And they were hungry and desperate before hibernating. And uh, yeah, you can fill in the blanks from there. Anyway, um, I'm feeling a little bit like fucking grizzly man right now because civilization i don't know if it's just uh i mean i'm assuming it's coronavirus um and just spending so much time away from cities and towns and such i remember like after being in this little town in colorado where i was for a couple months in uh march and april was it march and april no april and may what is time Um, driving through other parts of Colorado, like into, a sort of like commerce area with, uh, traffic lights and stores and just feeling really uneasy, even just in the van. Um, and I was like, why do I feel so weird? I didn't, I couldn't really put two and two together right away, but then I realized, uh, I'm pretty sure it's because I haven't really been in civilization for a long time, um, And yeah, it's just becoming more and more difficult to deal with it. And especially now, spending time in the woods, it's just like, okay, get into the internet zone, do what we got to do, get out, (laughs) like some sort of mission or something. But um, yeah, I, I think I could invite myself to feel badly about kind of opting out, especially at a time like this. Although I have to remind myself, hopefully through this podcast and my platforms and um, just the other shit I'm doing in the world that I'm not actually opting out, but opting into the thing that is authentic for me to do at this time. I've always been very critical of people that were kind of spiritually bypassed and like, okay, well, you know, I'm just going to go live my life and really like, you know, sucks for you. Uh, sucks for the world. They'll figure it out. I'm just going to go live in the woods. And um, I don't quite feel like that at all. I definitely still feel like it's imperative for me to be keyed in to you guys to some extent. You guys, although I'm sure a lot of you are off in the woods avoiding everything as well. Um, But yeah, just sort of exemplifying the fact that we can opt out and that it's okay to opt out of a lot of these systems and it feels really good and natural and authentic to our bodies and our nervous systems, um, which is becoming ever more apparent to me. It's like you have to, I have to be removed from the situation in order to recognize how uncomfortable it is to be within that situation. Um, We drove through Steamboat Springs and there was a pizza place and a brewery that we'd we been before and we are like, okay, let's just, we have some time, let's stop and get some of that pizza and beer. And walking into that place, and first of all, it's like everyone's on edge, everyone's anxious, everyone's stressed out just because of the state of the world. On top of which there are all these coronavirus and things that you have to do when you own a business and want to open up. So it's like, We stood in line, we walked in, the person at the counter was like, do you already have a table? No, we don't have a table. Okay, well, I can't take your order until we have a table, so give me your name and go wait. Oh, but you can't wait over there because it's too close to other people, so wait over here. Oh, wait, that's not good either. Okay, and then now we have a table. Great. Okay, so stand in line again now in order to order, uh, even though you just stood in line and ordered and I told you you couldn't order. And then we went to another place that said that even though we were clearly together... We had to spend, we had to stand six feet apart from one another. (laughs) It was just like ridiculous, silly rule after silly rule that clearly the people who are enforcing the rules didn't quite understand. Not only understand what the rules were, but didn't understand um, the reason for which they were enforcing them. And let me clarify, I do think it's important if we're going to be in the world at the moment engaging with other people with coronavirus still very present that we have these rules I guess what I'm frustrated by and a little bit unnerved by is like how far does it go how how far could we go as a civilization in terms of doing what we're told. You know, the mentality of, like, I'm just doing my job, hello. Like, corruption within the police force. Um, There's been a lot of that. I feel like no one really knows what's going on and everyone's really uneasy. And there's a lot of people that are like, I'm just following orders. And there are definitely some orders that are not dangerous and are going to protect us and are fine. But it's a little creepy when you realize the sort of robotic tendency to just do what you're told. And I feel like this even applies to what I was talking about last week a little bit with all this like shaming in regard to Black Lives Matter activism and like everyone's got to post on their Instagram stories because like that's the only thing that we can do that's going to actually show that we give a shit or that we're making a difference. Um, So we're just doing the the thing that we're told. We're doing the thing that everyone around us around us expects us to do it's like this sort of robotic thing exists on either side right it can look like oh but we're on the good side we're trying to post black squares or something um but it's still not thinking it's still not individuated or unique or thought through uh it's It's a freaky time. I get it. I think there are rules that we should be following, but maybe there are some that don't make any fucking sense. You know, how how many rules might someone institute in regard to something that seems like it should matter, like coronavirus, that are then begin to be abusive or hostile or (laughs) silencing? I'm not one of those like they're making us wear masks and we're silent kind of people at all. I don't think that's going on. But it is curious to think about how far it could go until people notice, like, wait a second, why am I doing this thing I was told? And again, that can be fighting for justice or injustice. It happens on either side. Um, I forget the name of it offhand, that prison experiment where people were shocking other people. Um, I believe that study was grossly misrepresented in regard to how many people actually did increase the electricity for the people they were shocking. But one of the really notable parts of that study is that the people who initiate initiated those shocks the hardest against others were the good students. They were the people that did well at work. They were the people that respected and listened to their boss. They got good grades. They didn't question things. They did what they were told. They were the I'm just doing what I'm told, I'm just following orders, people. they weren't the subversive people, the people that maybe got in trouble, the people that questioned the game to begin with, and you would think that those people, those law-abiding citizens like that's what we need to do Th- those are trustworthy, good people, but how trustworthy are they if they're not using their own brains? You know we have to we have to question things which which doesn't mean. We don't follow some orders. You know, it's not worth it for me to, like, cause a scene in the fucking pizza place (laughs) and brewery to make my point. That's not worth it. But if someone told me within that same vein to do something completely absurd, I have to be ready and willing to, like, walk out of that business. And so I think my just... (laughs) minor uh horror around being in civilization right now is just energetically it feels off and not worth it but I feel like people are not in a good state right now anxiety and stress and worry plus rules doesn't really end well and again this exists on both sides you know if you feel like you have to do activism in some sort of specified ABC kind of a way because that's what's going to make you fit in, you're also not doing anyone any service. It's so vital to, to to question things and ask whether or not it's worth it. Ask whether or not it makes sense to you. And that's a scary place to be because sometimes... You may be in a group of people that are all following some order or rule and you don't get it. And so then what? Do you just do it to fit in and how far does that go? Or do you say something and you speak up? You know, if you're surrounded by your racist relatives who are all making racist jokes, what do you do? Anyway, that's my rant for today. It's weird. It's, it's weird to assume positions that I feel so fearful that people will take in certain ways. I feel like I, I fall that way in almost every respect. It's like the same arguments that I'm expressing on paper, they look the same as the, like, don't wear the masks sheeple argument. I actually saw that like spray painted on a rock while driving the other day. Take the masks off, sheeple. Um, You know, it's the same thing that I say with the Me Too movement, for example. It's like the same arguments or questions that I'm asking on paper look like the questions and arguments that the rapists are asking. Uh, And to me, it makes perfect sense that my opinions and my feelings are not aligned with them, even though they look like they may be on paper. But it's interesting to see how difficult I feel like it is for a great deal of the population to recognize or embrace that paradox. Um, Aaron and I, who I host Horror Rapport with, just recorded a podcast yesterday about power. Uh, this is a podcast where I have conversations about sex with my best friend and uh so yesterday we talked about power in general but obviously in regard to sexuality and other such things um and that was definitely one of those types of conversations I said something at the end like and if you think this reasoning is perpetuating rape culture you should check yourself um because it's so easy to get freaked out. It's so easy to get triggered. It's so easy to just want to fall into the black or the white box. And we lose so many opportunities for nuanced conversation that we need to be having. And I'm not perfect with it either. You know, I experience these struggles in my own personal life as well. I think it's very true that. The things that we preach about are often the lessons that we need to learn ourselves or lessons that we have learned ourselves. So I'm not saying I'm perfect in this respect, but it's definitely something that's very, very top of mind for me. And I try very hard not to fall into predetermined boxes because they're boring and they're oversimplified and just a really not fun way to live life. Or no, I don't know. Maybe it's actually more fun. (laughs) Maybe this is harder. Either way, I'm just going to be out in the woods if you need me. Um, Today's episode is with my friend Jenny. Um, I love listening to these conversations back after I have them. Uh, This happened several weeks ago, a month. I'm not really sure. I know it was the Gemini new moon, so whenever the hell that was. But um, yeah, Jenny's one of my friends. I met her in my astrology apprenticeship. And um, basically, this is a conversation that we would have had offline, but just decided to bring into the podcast sphere for you all. Jenny's a fascinating person. And um, yeah, I mean, I think even our conversation, we talk a lot about interpretation and filters Everything is filtered and interp- can be interpreted differently depending on who you are, which I think is a gift in many ways. You know, I don't think we're supposed to all take information and identically process it and understand it. We all have unique life experiences. I think there's a purpose to that. And I think that's sort of what i am been ranting about on this intro. You know, you have an opportunity as a unique authentic, individuated person to receive information and process it in your own way. What do you think about it? How do you feel about it? What do you want to do about it? The more difference we have in our understandings and our actions, the better off we are. I mean, I feel like the entire purpose of civilization is to stop that process, stop the individuation process, because it's dangerous and it doesn't help to perpetuate What the government wants to perpetuate. What the broader system wants us to perpetuate. It's all go to school and go to work or go to jail. It's just training to be identical. And we're not. So anything that we can do to opt out of that is great, as far as I'm concerned. If you would like to support the podcast, you can do a couple things. If you have a few bucks to spare... You can head over to patreon.com slash Anya A-N-Y-A-K-A-A-T-S. There are three different tiers. You can donate a little bit of money per month and help me keep this show rolling. This is my only source of income, so my Patreon supporters are basically my lifeline. Um, And in exchange for your donation, um, I offer several perks, uh, playlists. As I mentioned, there's this WhatsApp group chat. Um, that only has three spots left. So go grab them if you want them. Um, I am going to be launching a book club officially. So I've decided that if uh, you are a patron at the $10 a month level, that you will just get access to that book club and it's going to happen quarterly. And I'm going to pick a book and there's going to be a month to read it. And then we're going to get together and talk about it maybe over Zoom. I have yet to pick the book. I have not picked the month in which that will happen, but I am guessing it will probably be August. If you're a $10 patron, you don't have to worry about it. You can totally participate. Of course, it's optional. I'm not going to force you to read a book, Um, but uh, totally your call. If you'd like to do it, you're in. If you're not a patron or don't want to become a patron, but you still want to participate in the book club, there will be a way to sign up to do that separately. Although as far as the monthly donation goes, it'll probably be more than if you just become a patron. Um. Anyway, lots of other perks on Patreon for you to check out if you are interested in doing that. If not, um, just share an episode with your friends. Tell one of your friends or family members or enemies about the podcast. Um, My point is and has always been and will always be just to reach as many people as possible. So send a link to a friend um, and that would be amazing and I would greatly appreciate it. Just want to increase this community of total subversive weirdos because we're important. Um, What else can you do? If you listen to the podcast on iTunes, um, you can right now, takes two seconds, hit subscribe. That way, you know, every time an episode comes out. So that's cool. You can scroll down past all the list of the episodes and you're able to rate the podcast with some stars. And then just below that, there's a space to write a review. This is really helpful because it helps the podcast show up more in search results. As I found, a lot of people don't know how to spell millennial. So if you spell it wrong, it's not a popular enough podcast um, for it to always show up. Sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. But the more people that rate and review the podcast, the more it'll be like, oh, did you mean this podcast? Here you go, which is helpful so that people can actually find it. Plus, um, as I reach out to more well-known guests, the first thing they're going to do is go into iTunes and see how many people have rated and reviewed it to see if it's worth their time. So in the end, rating and reviewing the podcast actually helps you guys. So what else? Um, If you happen to live in Oregon, Washington, Montana, Idaho, Wyoming, or Colorado, And you have a recommendation for a cool campsite or a swimming hole or you happen to live out in the woods and would like to get together in a socially distant way, please let me know. I know times are weird right now and fully plan on being discreet and respectful. But if you feel comfortable with something like that, um, definitely we're going to be staying away from cities. But if you have a cool spot that either you're at or you'd just like to recommend, please please. Would really appreciate you reaching out. Would love to meet you guys or just explore the places in the country that you love. Um, you can reach me by email, AnyaKotz at gmail.com. You can reach me over on Instagram at Cots, Or send an owl with a note. I don't know. Um, definitely reach out. Uh, would love to get together with people if possible. Um, okay. I'm going to stop talking now. I want to get out of this suburban area as soon as possible. Um, Love you guys. Oh, I'm going to play you into this podcast with a song. How could I forget? Um, I'm going to play you in with a song called Dreamland by Glass Animals, which feels like a very topical song for this time. I feel very lost in Dreamland. I, I can't really be here in this real-life time sphere. And I think that's okay. Doesn't mean I'm avoiding things. Doesn't mean you're avoiding things. If you want to just go off into dreamland, whatever you got to do to process and metabolize this shit so you can show up in the way that you need to show up is totally fine with me. So until next time, I'll be somewhere off in my own little world. And uh, I hope we can all join our own little worlds together at some point. I hope this virus thing tapers off, but that we still stay away from freaking public spaces and shit that aren't necessary. Because why? Wouldn't it be cool if just, like, Disneyland disappeared? (laughs) I wouldn't mind. Cruise ships? Wouldn't mind. Why do those things exist? We don't need them. They're not important. Go outside, you guys. Get some sun. That shit's important. Send a message to someone you love. If you can't see them in person or if you're in person, just go hug them and then sit in the sun again. I've been sitting in the sun a lot. That shit feels good. And apparently vitamin D is like the number one preventative measure toward coronavirus. So works for me. My nose is like peeling right now because I feel like I've gotten too much sun. Don't care. Love it. Okay. Um, Enjoy the song. Enjoy this episode. Talk to you on the other side. Alrighty. I'm here with my friend Jenny, who I'm very excited to have on the podcast. She is I'm excited the, to be here. <laughs> she is the sec- second, I guess, other than Kestrel, who came on the podcast that was uh, in my little astrology apprenticeship posse. I should just like work my way through <laughs> all of you. <laughs> um, but yeah, I'm really excited to have you on the podcast. I feel like... Uh, you and I have a lot of similar interests and think in very similar ways, but mm-hmm. I also sort of see you as a mentor of sorts for sure. Um, I'm honored. And have always really appreciated your guidance, which has uh, been multifaceted in its sort of themes. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um So I guess the first thing, and and I think actually part of this conversation is going to just be me, like getting to know you better and how you sort of became the person that you are. So, um, so I guess if you want to start, I know you, you've done like a lot of different things in your life, but I do feel like they all sort of circle around each other and talk Mm. to each other. Um, But I guess the one, so you could, if you could just sort of talk about like who you are and what you do. And, um, so the sort of main selfish interest that I have is how you (laughs) got into the whole Greek thing. Like how did that pique your interest and why specifically like writing and, and poetry within that space?
1: Sure. So, uh, currently I know Anya because I'm an astrologer, uh, and I have a uh, fledgling astrology practice where I bring in all of my diverse interests that I will unfold for you now. Uh, And um, I have a PhD in Greek literature, and um, I bring those things, my interest in literature, symbolism, poetry, as well as trauma, which we can get into, if that's of interest, later, uh, into my astrology, and I guess you could call it counseling practice. But um, I got into... Everything Greek. Uh, when I was young, like most of us, uh, studying ancient Roman, ancient Roman history, mythology started with Rome. Uh, also went to went got into Greek history. I found an essay I wrote in third grade about Greek columns recently. You know, like all of us. <laughs> and <laughs> when I was in middle school, I started studying Latin, and I really loved. Uh, the grammar of dead language. And that was what drew me in. Probably not the first doorway for most people, but it was mine. And um, uh, I went to an arts high school and I was really involved in uh, creative writing and uh, every different type of art, creative art. But I had this burning desire to get a PhD in, uh, ancient Greek and Latin. That's what I wanted to be when I grew up. So I, um, only looked at colleges that had something called classical philology, which is the old way of saying studying Latin and Greek. Um, and I ended up going to a small college in Wisconsin, liberal arts college. And that was wonderful, but, uh, a small college in Wisconsin got really boring after two years. (laughs) So, uh, I I decided uh, I was very fortunate to have scholarships and to, that this liberal arts education was affordable for my family. And so I decided to take my junior year in Greece because I was obsessed with all things ancient Greek. Um, and so I moved to Athens in 1996 and 1997. And that was where um, my confrontation with the reality of modern Greece began. And it was very, very different from studying Euripides and, you know, uh, the grammar of ancient Greek. And I loved it. I had loved language but never really been involved with an actual living language. <laughs> <laughs> and so um, Greece was such... It's a place that is so paradoxical, Anya. I mean, you would love it. It's just... there. There is a song that says in Greek... Uh, long live Greece, long live the the illogical. It's like a very popular <laughs> pop song.
0: That's and
1: so I just loved um, being in this milieu where I could pursue all of my nerdy ancient interests deeply, but then develop a relationship to a place um, that had had to recover from A 20th century that was riddled with trauma um, Multiple wars, civil wars Refugee crises uh, Two dictatorships um, And the people there were filled with this past And and the emotional effects of this past Plus living in the shadow of um, being the carriers Of this great ancient civilization Plus speaking modern Greek is just really fun As hopefully I will read you some Greek Later on in our conversation, Definitely. so I, I, you know, we we often talk about the formative moments where we discover who we want to be as an adult, and and that's what I did when I was nineteen. I developed a whole other identity in modern Greek, um, and I mm. just kept pursuing that one step after another uh, until I finally finished my PhD um, almost at age forty.
0: What was it about, as you say, this dead language that was appealing to you? Like how at the time, I feel like probably a lot of people's experience would be not understanding why anything like that would be of interest or that it was sort of dull and, you know, not alive. Um, so I'm curious mm-hmm. what about it was, uh, what what appealed to you about it?
1: Um. It's like going into the roots or the um, symbolic potential of language. So Latin is Latin is the basis some, somewhat. The I mean, we Latin is an Indo-European language, and so is English. Although English has a lot of Germanic roots in it, uh, but it was like a, a semi- semiotic field that you could play with, and it had so much. P- poetic and symbolic potential for me that I loved it plus it it followed a log- logical rules at the same time which were easy to grasp and it was like decoding mm. being uh, having a passage of latin in front of you in 8th grade was like is like solving a puzzle that i loved yeah. um and it just grew from there and i know that we often talk about on your podcast and in our friendship archetypes and myth which is another doorway into ancient culture but for me it was really the multivalent symbolic potential of language that i loved
0: mm. and that did draw you in though to the sort of archetypal mythological aspect of of Greece as well i would imagine
1: Yeah, absolutely. But it does, I will say it takes a while to get there through (laughs) the language. You have to be proficient uh, up to a certain level and then you can see it. The more you see patterns, it's like astrology. The more you see patterns, the more the world opens up for you, but you have to kind of know what you're looking at first. And that was the intellectual, it was like a big intellectual quest for me Mm -hmm. is how I got there.
0: Right. But
1: that has its limits. Which are? Uh, (laughs) You know, at a certain point, it starts to get very dry. And, you know, are you communicating it? How are you communicating it? Like, if I'm just translating um, ancient Latin poetry or a Greek tragedy, when do I get to talk to someone about the pathos and, you know, the way the Medea archetype resonates with me or anything like that? So that was how I ended up eventually going to Greece and trying to find a community And the community actually ended up being modern Greek people themselves.
0: Fascinating. (laughs) Um, what was this? Isn't there a really cool story about like a, a poem that you translated? There was like a guy that wrote it. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I'm talking about? (laughs) Uh, I do translate
1: um, Greece's Nobel Prize, first Nobel Prize-winning poet George Seferis. He won the Nobel Prize in 1963, and he was a refugee from um, from what is now called Turkey, but back then was called Asia Minor. And hmm. that was how I actually got into the whole refugee thing.
0: Yeah, I, figure, I feel like I remember you in our apprenticeship telling a story about him or the way that you discovered him or something like that that was very sort of synchronistic and fascinating. Um, but it sounds like his writing also has just been really uh, imperative and important in your whole journey.
1: Yeah, he's you know one of the several modernist poets that you would study in Greece, and um, he writes a lot about language, landscape, homeland, and ecstatic experiences, hmm. which were all things that I was interested in, and the symbolism of landscape and language together. And it's a trope in modern Greek literature, you know, this magical light or the potential of these different landscapes to evoke the ancient past. But for me, the poet seems to have had mystical experiences. And that's a question for me about what those were and investigating them. And trying to convey that in my own translations of his poetry. So um, that was what my dissertation was about. And now I'm translating uh, his posthumously published, as yet untranslated in English, work. His last work of poetry.
0: Do you feel like translation, I mean, it's such a fascinating domain that I don't feel like I have much experience in, in terms of like translating a language to another language. Um, Mm -hmm. but do you feel like either that part of what appealed to you about that or what it sort of taught you and brought you in other aspects of your life was like this sort of mercurial ability or understanding of you know all the sort of filters we have to understand something or to translate an experience mm-hmm. into words um, can you talk yes. about that at all yeah
1: yeah i mean you're 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 taking it's both interpretation and um creation trans, the act of translating poetry so um i didn't produce my first translations of this poet until I had spent years with him. It's like almost like getting inside his mind and aesthetic. Hmm. Also my language ability needed to develop, but but yes, the the mercurial aspect is like what register is he using? Where does this word come from? Is it from his village? Is it an ancient word that he found in a text? Is it a Byzantine word? And all of these different levels of language and meaning um, you're constantly playing with and and it's like anything like you have good days and bad days, like like a oil painter it's trying to render something and it doesn't work. Like some days it doesn't come out great in English, but you can always go back and you know retry it when you're in a different mood, and that's mm. what you mean by the filters. so it's very hard for me to feel like a translation is ever done you're just sort of turning in completion, getting to a level of completion.
0: And I, I imagine also that it like brings awareness to just like the ways in which we all subjectively understand something or just personally like, wow, I read this or I see these words and it evokes this feeling or it evokes Mm -hmm. this meaning for me. Um, and Mm -hmm. how that must like inform, your own personal experience. I mean, I think probably like as an easy example, uh, you know, I think anybody that's sort of self aware and conscious, it's like when you give an astrology reading to someone, you realize that reading mm-hmm. is very much about you as well, you know?
1: <laughs> Absolutely. And what you're talking about is like getting comfortable with my own filter. You know, I had to get, I all, I translated this poet for my dissertation, and it took me six years of kind of hiding behind, you know, first it's hiding behind academic jargon. Then it's hiding behind what everybody else said about this poet. And then it's like, no, this is what I think he he meant. And by translating only one poet, then I developed my own symbolic coordinates like my own set of symbolic language for what he was trying to say for his symbolism it's like coordinating uh translating his symbolic world into mine Mm. which is really what the astrology reading is to me and i wish more people knew that when you go to an astrologer you are basically getting a download of their worldview (laughs) i think
0: yeah yes (laughs) um it, so, okay, backing up, backing up. So what... I actually didn't know this about you, that the that you struggled with infertility and that this is what actually led you to astrology. And fascinatingly, one thing that I've always really admired or respected about you was your... Um, feeling about having kids and the sort of decision that you made around not having them and why. And, and so much of what you said resonated with me on such a deep level. And was like the first time that I, Mm. like, I always felt like I, I, it wasn't that I felt like pressured into having kids. I don't think I came from a very traditional family where people, you know, I felt like I was like under this huge cultural, you know, expectation that I should have them. However, it just felt like what you do. Um, Mm -hmm. And when I realized, like, I didn't have to do that, and that maybe Mm -hmm. my reasons for wanting to were not that great. Like I remember thinking like, well, but if I had a kid, they'd be like so fucking great and like <laughs> magnificent. And then someone would said to me, like, well, what if you like have a kid with Down syndrome? Like how are you putting that sort of expectation, like some sort of like narcissistic projection on like the most wonderful kid you're gonna have? Anyway, so just it made me think about it a lot and made me honestly like talking to you And thinking about my own sort of like ancestral trauma, like it felt like such a relief to recognize that I didn't have to do that. Um, Mm -hmm. And interestingly, Mm -hmm. I always sort of saw your understanding of this as like, oh, she must have always felt like this and known this, that she didn't (laughs) want to have kids for these reasons. And then I was just like perusing your website and realized that, that, that that wasn't the case, but that you sort of took this experience of infertility as a passageway to uncover, I think it sounds like a lot of the other aspects of like, why, why are why aren't I having kids? Why is this not possible now? And, um, that's
1: correct. I'm glad yeah. that you surmised that from my website and from how I talk about myself on my homepage. <laughs> yeah, that's absolutely true. Um, you know, uh, there was a part of me that always knew I didn't want to have kids and there was a part of me that always, Knew that that I can't say knew I wanted to, but um, I am the baby whisperer. Like I was a nanny. the The way I funded my my tours in Greece as a young person was by being a nanny. I raised several kids. By the time I was like twenty one, one kid I was a nanny for his first word was Jenny. Um, and I felt I feel so deeply the experience of what it is to be a baby and a child. That's why I am the baby (laughs) whisperer in some ways that I'm really, I can, I can be in that space, but then there's a whole nother question of, is that what I want for myself? And just because I am so deeply attuned to children, should I become a mother? And that was really what I struggled with. And, I have a wonderful husband, I have wonderful parents and in-laws, and I think that we all felt that we wanted to be a family together, my husband as well. Um, You know, he didn't want kids until he met me, and he said, I would have kids for you. Uh, And we, so we went down that road for a good long while, and it's not coincidental that the time when I was describing I was trying to write my dissertation and feeling very blocked with my own creativity was also the time that I was trying to have get pregnant. And, um, you know, there's a whole separate issue too that you've gone down about hormones and trauma and all of these things. But yeah, the, and, and the and then there's the ancestral piece. And I guess you knew me at the time We were doing our apprenticeship that my grandmother was passing away. And there are so many stories in our family about um, challenges with pregnancy and childbirth. I was born, uh, my mother had severe preeclampsia. I was born uh, at 30 weeks. That terrified me. I mean, honestly, the idea of, of me ever going through what she went through was like, sense I can get chills just thinking about it yeah. right now and so all of that came into play and it, it in in into a multi-year process of dealing with infertility and trying to figure out what was truth like truly what was my truth um and my I came down to the reason you know one of the big reasons why I wasn't able to get pregnant was that it wasn't me it wasn't what I really wanted and going, as I have, I stayed on my website that that was how I discovered astrology. And it's true that I, I was getting kind of desperate to figure out like, why isn't this working and what's happening? And I contacted a 70 year old Vedic astrologer <laughs> who's a former Carmelite monk, of course, <laughs> who's part of my spiritual path. And, yeah. you know, he went, he went over everything in my chart and it was like, Oh right. Yeah, okay. I don't even know how he knew all of that. And um he one of the things he said was that I have Pluto in the fifth house, which he correlated to something he he used the phrase multiple shadow pregnancies. Mm. And I was like can I swear on this podcast? Yeah, as like as much as you want. I was like, holy shit, how the hell (laughs) did he do that? Like, that is literally the verbal description of what was happening to me.
0: Yeah. <clears throat> Do you feel like your history and experience with, like, ancient civilizations and, like, symbology in general allowed you to be... One, inspired you to seek an astrologer and then and be open to it? Or was it something... Was it just, like, no. desperation? Um,
1: <laughs> no, at that point, I was... Um, new to my spiritual path Mm. and um in my uh my spiritual lineage one of our gurus is a great astrologer and he links astrology and karma and all these different things and so i was like well i've just got to figure out you know like what is going on from the karmic standpoint Uh, and so that I was specifically looking for a Vedic astrologer who would somehow be part of my lineage, which this person is, um, and get at it from there because my, my suffering at that time was also very related to my spirituality and trying to identify who I was as a spiritual person too.
0: So, and where did that come from? Your interest in spirituality or your, um, sort of alignment with it, uh, was like how you were raised separate from that and, and what sort of led you down that path?
1: Um, so this is where we get into trauma. Go Uh, for it. (laughs) Glad to be here. (laughs) So, um, no, my parents, uh, my parents are the classic hippie generation. My um, one parent is Jew, was raised Jewish and one parent was raised Catholic and neither one of them wanted to be a part of those organized religions. And they are quite vocal in their agnostic and or atheist stances. And um, so um, in my early childhood, I had many mystical experiences that I could not or just experiences of different changes in like the phase of my consciousness. Um, I had childhood epilepsy. I was a highly sensitive child. Um, and I could feel other people's emotions and thoughts. And I also, uh, frankly had visions, uh, that I could not, could make zero sense of. And I stuffed all that down (laughs) and I went on with my life and, uh, you know, my parents were very vocal that we don't believe in Jesus in this household. And I'm like, well, why do I see Jesus in my dreams? <laughs> you know? Yeah. Like, why do I pray to Jesus every night when, like, you know, my parents refer to people as Jesus freaks in a derogatory way? This was the 70s and 80s. um, And so it took me a really long time. and And, you know, then I became an academic and I was very much into rational, spiritual materialism or Western materialism. Right. Um, And so it took unpacking my trauma and um, also I started doing yoga like everyone does. And I'd be in yoga class and I'd have these like, everyone would be like, let's meditate for three minutes. And I'd have these sort of, you know, intense three minute meditations or, uh, you know, I'm like totally at my third eye, like, you know, having these experiences and going like, what the heck is happening to me? Is this what they mean when they say meditate, (laughs) you know? (laughs) Um, or like, so I started searching and I, um, joined different Buddhist groups and so I'd be in a Buddhist meditation and they say, like, let's drop into our heart centers and see if we can feel anything there. And I drop into my heart center and like there's an explosion of light and bliss and feeling. And I'm like, what the hell was that? Um. So it took me this was part of my journey as well, like writing the dissertation, struggling with infertility, trying to figure out who I was and what my spiritual path was and unpacking some of my trauma because really I can say looking back on it now, I was going into altered states as a child. Like You've heard me talk frequently about intense kundalini. When I met you, I was like, I don't even know what to do. I have so much kundalini in my body, I can barely function in some ways. And so...
0: can you just expand on kundalini for the listeners in case they don't know what that is? <laughs> yes. Like so, your personal experience with it.
1: Yeah, so um, in yoga, you might have heard your yoga teacher talk about prana or your acupuncturist talk about chi. So kundalini is the rising pranic energy that, that um, rises from... Um, the lower half of your body, let's say, if you're doing uh, yogic meditation or breath work, the goal in yogic practices is to take, the well, you would appreciate this because it's based on paradox that there's a positive and negative pole of your body like a magnet at the base of your spine and at your third eye. And the kundalini, rising kundalini is raising the energy from the lower pole to the upper pole and trying to unite with the divine through your third eye. And so the force that moves the energy upwards through um your chakras is called kundalini and it can be it's a lot of energy. Um it's kind of a hyper aroused hyper aroused nervous system state which I always had. Um, and tried to figure out what to do with.
0: Cool. Okay.
1: So that led me to, (laughs) to searching for my spiritual path. And that was how I kind of came to yoga and, uh, found my own, uh, set of gurus and spiritual practices.
0: Do you feel like your sort of like logical academic mind, was a hindrance to the spiritual side or do you felt like it it helped you like i i feel like one of the reasons i always was drawn to you and the way that you thought about all of this was because your spirituality felt very like logical and grounded which which may seem weird because at at times i don't really know how those things can be logical and grounded but they were there was like a a calm like reasonable aspect to them. Whereas Mm -hmm. I feel like there are other people who are like, I mean, the listeners can't see me, but like flowing Mm -hmm. through space and just like everything's light and, and, and there was something about you that like, I feel like you had these deep seated beliefs and Mm -hmm. acknowledgement of the unknown. And yet that always felt very grounded coming from you.
1: Yeah. Thank you. Um, yeah it was both um it, w- it I definitely think it was a hindrance in some ways because it was scary. It was very scary to go off into the unknown um you know i I really did want things to be logical and make sense and and I guess I found that in my spiritual path and and the reason I guess I'm able to to come across grounded is that my spiritual path reflects what I have really felt internally for a long time. And that's how I can put it into a framework, um, that others can understand, I hope. Um, and yes, I mean, I guess I never really studied religions, but, but I, I've longed to be a teacher in some ways. And so I want to connect with people. And if I, come across too extreme, (laughs) maybe then, you know, it won't land. I want to connect with you. I want to connect with your doubts. I want to show you that I had those too. I I couldn't, all I am is a person trying to make sense of an innate spirituality. I have great devotion. I have joy. Like I was saying, I have moments of pure bliss that I could not explain. And in the spiritual paradigm that I, my, that is my personal path, I found comfort in, in that framework uh, for the way the world works, for the way energy moves through my body, which was a huge question for me. Um, and for, for the question of divinity, scripture, like my spiritual path is uh, combines yoga and Christianity in some ways, and even though I wasn't raised a Christian It feels deeply Right
0: Can you talk more about why?
1: <laughs> sure um, My spiritual path Is is a devotional yoga Of Paramahansa Yogananda Who wrote Autobiography of a Yogi Which uh, The book that Steve Jobs handed out at his funeral To everyone who attended his funeral um, And as an astrologer i had to also come to grips with what is astrology how does this work what is my view of the cosmos i know it's a big question but i do feel that if i'm going to if i'm going to practice i have to have some sense of that and what it means for me so um my my spiritual path offers that in that you know if you read autobiography of a yogi Um, Yogananda goes into like, what is the astral world? What is the causal world? What is karma? Um, do we have free will? The question of fate or free will, which is huge in astrology. And I have a five email sequence about this on my website that you can sign up for. (laughs) Amazing. Um, these were questions that I really wanted to know more about. And, um, wanted to understand, and I also wanted to understand truly why I had so much love for God in my heart when I was raised in an atheist household, like this was not part of what we were taught. And I had to overcome, you know, my parents are really rational people, wonderful people. You know, but it's like, you know, the question of like, well, if it's not in front of my face, how can you prove it kind of thing? Or like, that's just your belief because it's, uh, you know, the context in which you were born into, or maybe you just want to believe that because that's what you want or need. That's true. I mean, I definitely was looking for, um, a context for me. Why am I here? Like, what is my purpose? The question of dharma how can i act with with purpose and intention in this world all of these things i really mattered to me and i feel like i found them
0: yeah the the christianity jesus thing is fascinating i also feel like i mean i was raised quote unquote jewish and my i celebrated christian holidays with my dad and I went to temple with my mom and had a bat mitzvah. And I mean, all of it mostly seemed ridiculous and absurd. Um, And then I started uh, dating this guy who ended up marrying, who wasn't raised religious, but who was kind of fascinated by it. And he would always say like, I don't really buy this or believe this, but there's something about it that's really compelling to me. Um, and I really respected that because he wasn't just sitting there being like, this is all true and amazing. He was like, Mm -hmm. there's something here that's drawing me in. And sometimes I feel like I get what Jesus dying for my sins means. And other times I'm just like, what the fuck are you talking about? (laughs) Um, And just sort of his process with it was really interesting to me. And he played, he was a musician, he played drums, and he would go to a church every Sunday and just play drums for free just to, like, be there Mm -hmm. and do -hmm. what he liked to do within that context. And um, I think it was a pretty, like, fundamentalist. Like, I don't think they believed anything that I was into. Thankfully, they didn't, like, go off on any sort of, like, weird homophobic rants while I was there. I would (laughs) have, like, like run traumatized out of the room. Um, But it was such a good experience for me to let go of whatever sort of fear or animosity I was raised with toward it. And also I didn't have to go there very many times to be like, I don't know what you guys are doing, but like, Jesus seems like a cool (laughs) dude. Um, Mm -hmm. and I still feel like that. Like it was, it's fascinating that Christianity in a way, or Jesus was like the, I think first open door for me in regard to like embracing some sort of spirituality in my life, um, mm-hmm. which is sort of like a beautiful mm-hmm. complex you know, <laughs> transition. Um, go ahead.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Because I mean, I have the same issue, like the Jesus that was all around me growing up, Is not the Jesus of my inner, frankly, more mystical experiences. And so reconciling that was like, was very challenging. It took a a while for me to just, as you say, let go and accept that. i don't I can't believe I'm saying this aloud, but that 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 Jesus is in some ways a savior in in that he taught like I believe mm-hmm. that he taught about mystical union with God and how that brings you to a greater sense of love and and um forgiveness and acceptance um and that's what it's about for me but Living in this world, we are confronted with many other versions of Jesus, many flavors.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I often like butt heads, I feel like, with people because I have a lot of like reverence and maybe not respect, but like reverence and understanding of religion in general. Because I, Mm -hmm. I guess, having a spiritual practice myself. Like, and I think I had to go through my own sort of dark night of the soul because I did definitely have some sort of feeling that if you believed in God or if you believed in something like that, that there was actually a weakness there. That it was like, it's mm-hmm. a cop out or, you know, why can't mm-hmm. you just be happy without that? And mm. and then when I was like stuck in like the worst, darkest, traumatic pits of my life, I didn't know what else to do but... Like, the first stage was just, what's the purpose here? Um yes. That was, like, within days of this all starting, I remember thinking, this is the worst pain I've ever felt. This is the worst period of time in my life. It might go on for quite some time, but what I know more than anything is that this is exactly where I'm supposed to be, mm. and... That was, you know, which is what sort of led me into like, okay, if this is where I'm supposed to be, what does this mean? And Mm -hmm. if it means something, how can I figure that out? Um, right. And so I, I really respect people who come from religious backgrounds. I respect people more who come from religious backgrounds and find ways to extract the like meaningful aspects of that religion and carry it on. Than I Mm -hmm. do people who reject religion outright.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I feel that because I I don't know if you felt this when you were growing up, but like, I I wanted to know what my cultural, religious, and ethnic traditions were. Um, You know, I'm partially Jewish, but mostly I'm just a white girl you know and uh that didn't give me a lot of options for belonging to be honest i know i have privilege and it afforded me wonderful things in my life and i'm grateful and humble and sometimes ashamed of that all at once mm-hmm. but my my soul was hungry for a lot more than what i got in this western capitalist upbringing um and so I really resonate with that and, and going, you know, I tried many different things. I tried going to Greece. I tried joining, you know, and maybe becoming a Greek Orthodox Christian. I tried joining a temple, you know, I tried being a Buddhist. (laughs) I I really put the effort in and, uh, it turns out that, you know, the answer was really had to come from within, not from without.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. So going back to this infertility decision not to have kids thing, I'd love Mm -hmm. if you could sort of like walk through, because I I think there's a very grave misunderstanding about what astrology is, that there are these planets or these energies that are somehow influencing, like we're puppets of this sort of somehow external force. And, Mm -hmm. um, that the benefit of astrology is to like calm ourselves down by almost letting ourselves off the hook in a way, which is obviously, I think like kind of, that sort of feels antithetical to what my experience with astrology was. Like I was not let off the hook. I was like put on the hook a hundred times, um, Mm -hmm but like your that story of how you went to this astrologer and and sort of received this information which it sounds like you recognized was already internal and which you already knew and mm-hmm. then sort of used that initial experience to gain more insight about like why you weren't having kids and why maybe it wasn't even the best decision for you to do so and how that unlocked all this other information around you know, passing on this sort of generational trauma, um, and maybe I just yeah, spoke that's, uh, that's, for you. <laughs>
1: no, no, no. That's uh, yeah. you and I have spoken about that. Um, remind me to come back to that because actually, it was your podcast about the mother wound. Mm. Oh yeah, where I had like I had a spontaneous vision, but I I want to get okay. <laughs> well, I was listening to it, uh, so. Um, When I had the reading, I'm just going to take your listeners back to struggling with infertility, trying to figure out who I was. When I had a reading with an astrologer, um, you know, the phrase, let's just say the phrase, multiple shadow pregnancies. I didn't know he's talking about Pluto in the fifth. Um, That really spoke to me. And plus the way he talked about how he could tell my spiritual proclivities the challenges I had around fitting in uh, who I am, shame, those kinds of things for my chart, um, I took it as a call to action. I took it as a call to try to figure out like, how does he get there from the symbolism um, that he has obviously spent decades, uh, and this person also was a, trained in Zurich, at the Jung Institute and he was a Jungian therapist for a while, as well as a monk Amazing. in the Vedic <laughs> astrologer. <laughs> Love it. Um, so, you know, I'm trying to figure out like what does this mean? And I also have a strong, I have a strong viewpoint on karma and free will. Like my my spiritual path puts an emphasis on karma as like the lesson plan, let's say, for this life. And, but that the free will is how do we choose to, to, what do we choose to do with it? Do you choose to see yourself as a victim? Like in that instance, I could have been like, oh my God, I'm never going to have kids. It's like totally my fault or this sucks, or now what's going to happen to my life. But I was able to stay present with myself and present with the fact that like, how is it possible that this man who, you know, doesn't know anything about me. And yes, skeptics can say like, oh, he read into it. You gave him the signals, you know, whatever. He's just a good psychologist. Uh, How did he do it? And so uh, for me, then it became a question of um, symbolism intuition like that's another big part of the astrology discussion like is it just planets working on you you know is astrology just a mechanistic uh practice or is it that you've gotten really good at looking at charts and seeing patterns um is it fate all of these questions again and again keep coming up and so i took the time to unpack each one of those questions as it related to myself and my own life. And that's what I want to say to all of your listeners about astrology is that, again, every time you go to an astrologer, you're going to get their their spin on it. And of course, I think many astrologers want to help people. And um, some are great at pattern recognition. Some are great at speaking to the symbolism. Some are great at understanding celestial mechanics and predictions and all of these different things, but, but you need to take that and decide whether it's true for you and use it in an empowering way. And that's what I did for myself. I hope that answers your question.
0: Yeah. So going back to the mother wound episode, (laughs) what was that? Mm -hmm. (laughs) I forgot about that.
1: The mother wound episode was so important for me. Um, because I, I mean, I, we haven't talked about therapy. You know, I was at that point, I've seen a Jungian therapist for six or seven years. And that's also how I got where I am now. But um, I was listening to the mother wound episode and I was walking on the ice to the bank to deposit some of the first income I had made from being an astrologer. And I was concentrating on not falling and listening intently. And then it was like time stopped and I saw a vision of all of the women in my maternal line telling me like, you've got to do this mother wound work for all of us and that's how you're going to help others. And I was like, okay, no big deal. What just (laughs) happened here? (laughs) I think I texted you or like put a message in our group chat. Um and so I it, it comes down to the fact that I think part of my struggles with infertility have to do with my own biography, but also the larger question of scarcity in uh in women's lives and how that how we have been taught that um that having children is the way to, to express ourselves and to, to prove our worth in a system that is not favorable towards women's power and creativity. Um, and that the, scare, the mother wound and the, what Bethany Webster teaches shows you how these, this mentality that I'm not enough, we don't have enough, um, h- gets handed down generation after generation. Um, and that, and you can go back to our grandmothers, our great grandmothers, et cetera, era and say, well, they, they didn't have as much freedom. They, you know, they were living in the depression or in my case in a shtetl in Belarus or, you know, whatever. And, and I have so much compassion for that perspective, but also that pain of not, not being able to live fully according to your own authentic drive and truth, I feel gets handed down and women attack other women uh, because of this scarcity mentality. Um, And that has been just a huge theme of my life. And honestly, I didn't know whether... I, I really wanted to break the pattern. And when I listened to that Your Podcast episode, I was like... I ha- I already knew I had to break the pattern, but it was like, not only do I have to break the pattern, but I have to find a way to heal this for myself and others. And I was pretty much almost healed when I heard that episode, but it spurred me on to, to really go into what is this trauma and how does it function in our bodies and mm. in the ways that we interact with each other. And the ways that it engenders shame and not enoughness, perfectionism is huge.
0: Yeah. Oh, all of that. Um, yeah, you know, it's kind of like coming full circle on all of this. One of the very first astrology readings I ever had was, um, uh, they told me that it would be really healing for me to be a mother And that that um, it was more than that. I mean, they went on for quite some time about this. That And and even sort of like trying to predict or talk about like when that might happen. Mm. And thank God at one point, like they were going on and on and on. And then said something to the effect. It was sort of a side note. But um, she was like, well, you know, also this could potentially mean something around like you know, being a mother of the earth or something like that, like a reverence Mm -hmm. for the planet. And, you know, like, you know, it's an interesting thing with astrology readings, because I think a lot of people would have heard this woman say that to them or anyone say anything with such specificity and I do think there's a danger in that because I feel like most people who are absorbing this information are not necessarily, like, responsible enough to filter it or to, like, recognize mm-hmm. that the person giving the reading is not God and that they're coming from their own, you know, their own realities, but also their own traumas and their own projections. and. um mm-hmm. I was kind of grateful for her saying that because I think similar to you like I fucking love kids and I'm really good with them. Like I often mm-hmm. if I'm in an environment with adults and kids, I'm just like I really don't want to be with the adults. I'd much rather be with the kids. Like I just feel mm-hmm. like I can breathe kind of and I mm-hmm. I feel like I feel like I operate on that level in a way that not Me everyone too. does. Yeah. Um and that was a weird realization to make that, like, you know, I can be, I can feel this way around kids. And also I can be a mom without having children, you know, we can, (laughs) that is
1: a, that is a mental leap because, you know, like I know how much my mother and mother-in-law want grandkids. I know how much my decision caused grief and it caused grief for me too. Right. Um, but, but then to take that leap to say, well, actually, I think my life, I I think that I can do as much good by sharing myself with the world. We don't think that way. We think like, well, my life, you know, is for me and my family and, you know, my definition of, of tribe.
0: Yeah. Do you... uh I also feel like the astrology for me, I'm wondering if this happened for you as well, that, like, it helped me to expand upon these archetypes in a way where, like, mother doesn't mean mom with kids, necessarily. That, like, all of these energies, um, these sort of mythological characters, like, they're so complex, you know, and exist within us in ways that are much broader and much more interesting and comprehensive than I think exists on some very sort of like rational level.
1: Yeah, absolutely. There are so many different ways to be a mother, good and bad, when you start studying (laughs) mythology. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But also my spiritual path, you know, takes a view of God as divine mother in the creative aspect of of the trifold divinity as divine mother and you know there's sometimes uh, a teaching of love others as as you as you, as if you were divine mother um which is not very prevalent in our culture so i can understand how that would be you know not something i, I had never thought that before
0: yeah so, I want to get into like a sort of controversial topic, maybe not for us, but for some people. As <laughs> if, if we, we haven't already gotten yeah, that. <laughs> um, but we both sort of so we both <laughs> went to a very like large astrology conference last
1: mm, year. A year right? ago. A year mm-hmm. ago.
0: Yeah. And I feel like we both had a very similar experience. I was And we both decided, like, never again, that we're never going to go back. Uh, And I'd like to hear you talk about why and sort of, like, how you feel like your own practice might exist in a sort of separate realm than, than... I mean, what's frustrating about this is I feel like there's a lot of astrologers, even within the traditional, conventional, popular astrology world, that I really respect what they're doing. But there is something about that conference specifically... Yeah, That really rubbed me the the wrong way. And I, I don't know if we totally talked about it, so I'm just sort of selfishly wanting to hear what your thoughts were on that and why it sort of didn't resonate with you as well.
1: Yeah, I mean, I won't say I'll never go back, but I think that the challenge for me uh, was that... I, so, you know, I, I have a PhD. I used to run academic conferences. I worked for a... Um, Uh, I worked for Harvard university and I was an administrator and I organized many an academic conference in my time. And the challenge with academic conference or with the conference format is that it's like, there's usually a hierarchy of senior versus junior, you know, there's a vetting process, which I totally understand, you know, the organizers want to have quality content. Um, but there's a, you know, there's a striving and a format that feels um like it's not very user friendly or relevant for me. I mean, I guess one of my challenges with a conference an astrology conference in particular was that it it felt that that conference felt like it was repeating those uh social norms um and it was triggering for me. Uh, because coming from, you know, I have a PhD in Greek literature and coming from an academic background, like classics, modern Greek studies, we are not, I mean, we we have cultural capital in that, like Greece is, you know, the progenitor of Western civilization, but in terms of like, you know, a STEM science or something like that STEM field, it's not very prestigious. And so it's like, what are we trading on? What prestige are we trading on? And it becomes... Uh, just very like gra- the the participants in the conference feel very graspy and like you want something, you want a job, you want recognition, you know, you want validation, you want your ideas to be heard, and I I feel very uncomfortable in that situation. I it put me back in a place where I was like on the academic job market or trying to get this senior scholar to respect my viewpoint on you know my poet or something like that. And so I was already triggered, you know, being in that environment. Um, And so, and then I felt like, well, gee, astrology is replicating this, these social norms and this discourse. And it's mostly led by the boomer generation, which I also have a lot of challenges with. um, Personally, (laughs) I'm not proud of it, but there, there it is. (laughs) And so... I know that at that conference, many people found many other astrologers like, we're already weird, you know? And then you go there and you find other people in your tribe. But I feel that you and I were fortunate that we already had that. So, like, what were we really doing there?
0: Yeah. Well, it felt, I mean, and this is an issue I struggle with in general is like the commodification of what to me feels like almost intangible belief systems or just systems of symbols or something. Um, I remember Mm. specifically like where I like hit a wall was that there, that there, (laughs) I
1: remember you hitting a wall during the keynote opening address. (laughs) It's so true. So I'm not sure what more there was to hit after that.
0: I definitely just like, I walked out. Um, But where I just, like, I think that was the initial, like, something's off. Like, this is not resonating with me. And then there was one lecture that was being given that said, I'm, like, scrolling through the book to try and find, like, which talks I want to go to. And there was one that said something like, if how to give a reading if you only have 15 minutes. And I was just like, Mm -hmm. no, no, don't do the reading. Like, how is it Mm -hmm. that we're, these are, like, the most you know, up-and-up astrologers in the, at least this country maybe right now, and why is that a practice we want to teach? Um, mm-hmm. And it felt, right. you know, I I think any of these things, astrology, any sort of, like, spiritual, community, religion, it gets a f- it's a sort of fine line, I think, between... Mm-hmm damaging and cultish and not to mention like spiritually bypassed and narcissistic and what's actually helpful. And I, you know, like my respect for those who were raised within, let's say a religion whom extract what they feel is valuable and continue it on. That's certainly my, um, how I approach astrology, right? It's like, there's a lot about it, at least mm-hmm. the way that it's practiced that doesn't resonate with me, but instead of rejecting it as hogwash and silly, because I feel so intuitively drawn to it, I try and find like, what, what is it that's here that's appealing to me? Um, and just pull from that. Mm.
1: Uh,
0: but yeah, it, um, you know, and also, and maybe we can talk a bit about in a way that our listeners will understand, um, the like Pisces Virgo access, uh, mm. which you know we could talk about for like another six episodes, but i'm very <laughs> I'm very interested and fascinated by physical space as like a container to hold like intangible mm. realities or belief systems or energy mm-hmm. and it felt like that conference was the wrong container, i guess <laughs> um, indeed
1: there is no reason why you should be in a suburban hotel uh it was it was just very that that was stressful like the container was stressful that's that i'm agreeing with you because for me the container was triggering of you know professional conferences in general um but yeah and i also agree with you about the commodification it's very challenging i mean in a way I'm partaking in the commodification of astrology in in offering my services as an astrologer. But the point you bring up is is that this is a very vulnerable, and it should be, I believe, therapeutic space. And so what are your ethics around that interaction and creating that container?
0: Yeah. Um, Can we talk about what... The inspiration was, and the meaning of the name of your astrology practice, sure um,
1: I, I think this gets to what we've been talking about about mothering is yeah. that um, i so the first inspiration um, was the uh, fixed star origa, uh, which is the goat in it being held by a charioteer. I believe it's in the constellation of Gemini. Um, it's a binary star, which spoke to me. But then I was going to call it Little Goat because of some of my my positive associations with goats. And then I started investigating the mythology of goats and um, came across this uh, goat goddess, sometimes a nymph, named Amalthea, and uh, who, who nursed Zeus so that Zeus could overthrow the um, reign of his father, Cronus, or Saturn. So we're talking about Jupiter and Saturn in the planetary, in the planets. Um, and so Amalthea in Greek is a synonym for corn, it's the cornucopia, it's abundance. And I really feel that my job is to nurture your authentic power so that you can o- truly overthrow, you know, the, the, the shame and fear that consensus reality puts on you. Does that sound, is that too intense?
0: No, it's <laughs> definitely not. Um, yeah. It's interesting too, just hearing you talk about that. I mean, obviously like astrology, you know, linking back to the beginning of our conversation about language that you know honestly if i had maybe had to pick one thing sure just like the belief that something larger than myself was going on but mm-hmm. having astrology and story like the mythological story behind that as a language
2: mm-hmm.
0: was so important and and i wonder mm-hmm. too if because it is inherently interpretive
1: <laughs> yeah that's yeah. it. That's, that's the phrase that I've been trying to get at through this conversation is it is inherently interpretive. Um, yeah, I agree. And, and it's divinatory. We haven't gotten to that either. Mm-mm. Um, you know, for me, when you were talking about your dark night of the soul, there's several things that happen in that dark night of the soul. It's when will this suffering end? How can I make meaning of it? and um trying to know when it will end is is divination too like what's going on here i feel that divination is a inherent human impulse and what is divination but communicating with the divine
0: right right which can take many forms i mean you know and i think i like the inter you know a lot of people I feel like are skeptical of astrology because it's like okay we have Mars that can mean 600 different things you know not only can it mean 600 different things but it can mean different things for one person at different phases of their life like there is no answer it's all Mm -hmm. it's all moving and flowing and again being filtered through our own consciousness and you know, instead of being afraid of that because of how easily it can be manipulated, which is true. And, and I think we've both had experiences like that, um, firsthand Mm -hmm. to me, it's like, you know, it, it feels like a responsibility in a way, you know, it feels like a, a challenge and, and, and in just insight, you know, and even if, you know, I had to go through a really big, sort of process of recognizing that I feel like I picked up astrology pretty quickly and like understood it and I was good at communicating with people. So I was good at giving readings and, you know, it just hit me. Like I remember giving a reading to someone and interpreting something about their mother that I initially was like, that was a fucking projection on you. Like you had no reason to say that other than just assuming that someone else was having your experience. Um, Mm -hmm. but it was a, it was a, I'm really grateful for that, that recognition of its power and its danger and, um, Mm. and to just learn from the, as you know, you know, hoping that none of us are hurting anyone. Um, like when you are translating Greek, like, you know, getting comfortable with our own filters and, and learning from that in a way that's profound
1: and getting comfortable with your own power that's what you're talking about
0: hmm.
1: you know um i have i agree with you it's in terms of it's a lot of responsibility and i'm someone who has often taken on a lot of responsibility for others and then been unable to act because i'm afraid of hurting them and so this this actually becoming an astrologer has helped me rebalance that in myself. It's like, yes, I have power and responsibility and I, I honor that, but also the other person also has a r- responsibility in terms of how they interpret yeah. what I say, right. <laughs> which I'm sure has been a journey for you yeah, <laughs> uh, with this podcast.
0: Yeah, totally. Um, yeah. It's an interesting balance. I mean, I, I definitely do. You know, I feel like I was constantly surrounded by narcissistic personality types, like I mm-hmm. was the fucking magnet. Uh, and I was so, I had such a, biz, like, not bizarre, I mean, I understand it. I was always, like, just so trusting of people that they were good and they wouldn't hurt me and that they had the best intentions and then, like, continually was proven wrong. Um, mm mm-hmm. And I would see these people with these sort of public identities that did not at all mirror their private lives. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's, it's one thing, like, obviously, I'm not all of myself in the public realm. I don't expose every detail of my personal life and my personality on the podcast. It's obviously going to be just like one part of me, but that part of me exists outside of the podcast and is just sort of expanded upon. It's not antithetical to who Mm -hmm. I am as a person. I'm not playing a role. And, and yeah, it was, it was important for me, both for whomever was going to listen that like I was going to walk the talk, but it was also important to, to me, like for me, um, because it was a, it felt like a practice in authenticity and honesty that I really needed too. So it was a a challenge not Mm -hmm. to want to just play a role. I mean, now I don't even know what role that would be. I don't really know how to not be myself. Um, But it felt like I know that this, like I'm called to this. I feel like I'm, this is really, you know, resonates for me. And it, you know, for my whole life, I felt like people were like, following me to some extent um and if i was gonna do that Mm -hmm. i really wanted to do it right um but yeah, yeah.
1: and that's It, it i mean i actually think leadership is about authenticity and um and the ability to communicate and be vulnerable
0: right um so you recently posed to our group chat about what mm. uh, we thought about using the phrase trauma informed astrology. I think <laughs> is what it was, mm-hmm. and I see you've added that to your website, which I'm really happy about. Um, and I know we've we've talked about trauma um, and astrology in this podcast, but I'm curious to hear like what your what does that mean to you when you say trauma informed astrology.
1: Um, well, I've now come to the belief that we all have trauma. Um, your guest, Mark Ep- Epstein, mm-hmm. Epstein uh, talked about <laughs> big T and little t trauma uh, under the rubric of uh, dukkha or suffering in the Buddhist paradigm and I couldn't agree with that more. I feel that We all, um, living in this world, have to confront trauma the way that Gabor Mate would define it as a constriction or a disconnection from an uh, authentic source of internal truth. So that's my basic definition. Um, And I'm not saying that I, I... I guess one of the reasons I was posing that to the group chat was that I don't want people to think that when I do a reading for you, I'm just looking for the trauma or show up with all your wounds. But I also want to acknowledge that we all have them and that the, the astrology reading and you, you come to an astrologer because you're like me, you're struggling with infertility and spirituality questions. You're
0: traumatizer. For fuck's sake. <laughs>
1: yeah. Like, you know, you don't come cause you're like, well, I, I don't know, at least not to me, you know, uh, should I buy a Lexus or a Prius? Like that's not <laughs> why you're there. So, uh, so I want to acknowledge that I, that I honor that. And that's part of my approach. But, um, you know, and I'm working on that, but I also want to bring a more embodied response to trauma, to my practice. Um, and so I'm trying to signal that a trauma-informed conversation also involves acknowledgement of, you know, what that experience may have felt like for you emotionally and physically, and um that... I really understand what what coping mechanisms we use in response to trauma in this world. Like and that you know if we're looking at Saturn in your chart and you're telling me, you know, about your abandonment issues that 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 I have some training to be able to to talk about that with you and and help you make sense of that.
0: Yeah, and I think it also invokes you know, what we talked about a couple of times, which is like the responsibility of the person receiving the reading as well. It's like to be trauma informed, I think also means that, you know, you empower the person on the other side of the table to like you did with the infertility to sort of think more deeply about these things and also have the understanding that you're also traumatized. And so like, how, what does that bring to the table as well?
1: Mm Mm-hmm. Exactly. You
0: know. yeah. Okay. I want to keep talking to you, but I feel like we should wrap up. But before we do, I know you have at least one poem to read. Yes, I have. Actually, I have three short poems. Amazing. Yes. Okay. I'm excited. <laughs> so tell because us I know, what they
1: are. <laughs> yes. And I know that you often ask your, you always ask your guests about book recommendations so, I'm going to be a typical Gemini rising on this Gemini new moon and give you multiple suggestions.
0: Excellent. Um,
1: the first is, and I'm not going to read from this, but I'm just going to suggest that your listeners check it out, is um, called No Friend But the Mountains by Behrouz Bouchani. And this is a book that was written by a Iranian Kurdish refugee who found himself in a prison. Um, In Manus Island, I believe is in Papua New Guinea And uh, he wrote the book on a cell phone um, And his translator translated it from Farsi And it is the most harrowingly beautiful account Of what it's like to be imprisoned In our um, cross-national industrial complex of prisons In this world right now So I'm going to highly recommend that. Um, And then now I am going to read a very short poem by George Seferis, who is the poet we were referring to. He won the Nobel Prize in 1963, and he was a Greek who was born in what is now Turkey. And do you mind if I read a few? It's very short if I read it in Greek first.
0: No, please do.
1: So, this poem is untitled. It was taken from his journals. It was written in 1954. And the poem uh, is a summary of what it took me six years to write in my dissertation. (laughs) I wish I knew about this poem. (laughs) (laughs) So, I'll I'll start in Greek. (laughs) Taxidepsa kurasthika kiegrapsaligo. Masilogistika polito girismo saranda chronia. Seolistisilikis o anthropos inen avrefos, itriferotita, kiktinodia, tiscunas, tala tapotelioni thalasa, santo acroyali, tinangalyamas, ketonijo, tisponismas. I wandered, got tired, and only wrote a little. But returning home was always on my mind, forty years. Man is an infant at all ages, within the cradle's tenderness and brutality. Like the shoreline and the sea, everything else is erased, our embrace and the sound of our voice. And that is my translation.
0: Amazing. Oh, so good.
1: (laughs) And then I wasn't sure how much... um, You know, nervous system trauma We are going to get into in this discussion So one of the things I have struggled a lot with Is insomnia and kind of hypervigilance As a trauma response And so um, I brought I wanted to read a translated poem That speaks It almost makes me cry every. I read it all the time About my own insomnia It's a poem about insomnia Um, And it is by the Lebanese poet Jawdat Fakhredin. hope I'm pronouncing that right. It was translated from the Arabic by his daughter, whose name is Huda Fakhredin, and uh, her translation partner, Jason Iwan. And um, this poet, this book is called Lighthouse for the Drowning, again by Jawdat Fakhredin. And this poet uh, came to the town where I live and gave a reading, and I went, and that's how I discovered it. Hmm. So these are... This is a pair of poems about insomnia. Day. The dearest thing to me was the garden in prayer as it dried morning tears. Around me, the remains of the night before, cigarette ashes and the lingering dark in the bottom of a glass. These obsessions, perched on the fading papers on the table, have for long now shared my nights. They have even begun to share my trembling when despised by a distant thought. The closest thing to me was the prayer of the garden, but now where will you drag me, O day? Shall I rise to witness your death over the wild lands? Shall I set out towards you? You, heavy and weary like me, I only see you reveal our flaws. Why do you tempt me to you every day? You motion to me and we both rise from our living wakes, from the insomnia of the night before. We both remain staring into a darkness that doesn't lend the drowning a hand, each dissipating into an outward gaze. We remain like that until I see you rise thread by thread from your distractions. Why then do you tempt me to walk toward you? Won't you be so kind as to leave without me one day to trace your frail threads in all directions? Walk away and leave me so I might sleep through the morning on a sheet of garden prayers among the remains of the night before. That's part one. And this is night. Night. The dearest thing to me was the garden in prayer. As it bid the setting sun farewell, it slid out of one dress and into another, a fragrance quivering like visions in its robes. And I, did I witness or disintegrate? I cannot say. Visions are but trances. I feel myself slacken bit by bit. Come then, O night, soon we will begin our ritual. You will take me under your robes in diffidence, and you will be as tender as you can, but sleep will soon defeat you. You will abandon the temptations I have set for you, a book, a glass, a pack of cigarettes. You will despair of me at midnight, throwing yourself into a fatigue of ash, and I will remain behind with my insomnia. So there you go. Night and Day, or Day and Night by Jaudat Fakradin. I love it. <laughs> Thank you for indulging me.
0: Yeah, of course. Anytime. Now I feel like I just want to have you like read me poems every day. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I do have some, my first guided meditation that you can download on yep. uh, the app Soundwise. Amazing.
0: I'm going to do that. And I hope everyone else does as well.
1: <laughs> awesome.
0: All right. Well, thank you so much, Jenny. This was such a pleasure. And, uh, I'm really glad to sort of have taken one of our normal convos and projected it outward toward the masses.
1: Yes. Thank you for having me. And thank you for, um, being a container for my honest vulnerability.
0: I hope it resonates with your audience. Anytime. Hello, everybody. Thank you for sticking around and listening to that episode. Hopefully you all love Jenny as much as I do now. Um, if you would like to support the podcast, please head over to patreon.com slash Anya Kotz. Uh, you can donate if- few dollars a month and get access to lots of perks like playlists and WhatsApp group chats and book clubs and all sorts of cool stuff. Um, if you don't have any money to spare, I totally understand. These are hard times. Send an episode to a friend. Tell someone about the podcast. Uh, go into the iTunes store, hit subscribe and rate the podcast and leave a review. It helps a ton and I'd really appreciate it. Um, I'm going to play you out today with a song called Moment of of Surrender by Nick Mulvey um yeah was listening to this a lot the past week thanks to Aaron who is my musical muse among other types of muse for me (laughs) did that make sense um there is a section of lyrics that I really enjoy that I'm gonna read for you in case you can't hear them in the song um I have been in every black hole at the altar of the dark star, and my body's now a begging bowl. And it's begging to get back, begging to get back to my heart, to the rhythm of my soul, to the rhythm of my unconscious, to the rhythm that yearns to be released from control. Fuck yeah. Same. (laughs) The control thing. I don't know if you guys listened to the episode I did with Charles Eisenstein, but we talked about that a lot, this myth of control that we're all sort of freaking out from. And honestly, the control piece is really, I feel like, a huge undercurrent to this following rules thing. We're desperate to get back to some sort of sense of control, but the point is we don't have it, and I actually think the point of this entire process and what's going to continue to unfold is going to strip us of this myth of control more and more and more. Which is really why I say things like I'm just going off in the woods or into dreamland or whatever else. Whatever space you can find where you're able to sort of relinquish control and just trust and flow. These are all very important feminine expressions of power in my opinion and and Feminine expressions of power are very lacking in this patriarchal society. And I would argue imperative for us to attack and deconstruct and dismantle patriarchy is to stop valuing unhealthy forms of masculine power. Control is definitely one of them. So let's fucking surrender over and over and over again it's hard and vulnerable but if we're all doing it together I promise it's a lot easier enjoy the song I have a lot of amazing episodes I cannot wait to bring you and more that I am recording in the next few days so hope you all are staying somewhat sane and healthy and I will talk to you next time
2: I tied myself with wire to let the horses run free, playing with the fire until the fire played with me. Yeah. And the stone was semi-precious But we were barely conscious Two souls too smart to be in the realm of certainty Even on our wedding day Well, hey, hey We set ourselves on fire Oh God could not deny her And it's not if I believe in love